0: Coming to you from the AT&T podcast studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struli, the executive director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies wrote a story about public meetings at state agencies, boards, and commissions, and just which agencies have canceled the most meetings. Paul, what led you to that story?
1: Yeah, so I I cover state agencies for Oklahoma Watch, and kind of I get a lot of these meeting notices every month for all kinds of state agency boards and commissions, and some of them are worth checking out and kind of taking a look at. And so I noticed that uh, I kept getting meeting cancellation notices, For this one state uh, banking board, and I was wondering what was going on, and I kind of took a broader look and decided to kind of maybe see if this was a story worth covering.
0: Well, uh, meetings sometimes get a bad rap, right, especially if they're run badly, but why are they important for transparency, Yeah, I mean, definitely meetings and and regular meetings
1: are a good way for the public to see an agency or a board or commission doing business, uh, making huge decisions on purchases, on personnel, on leaders of that agency. And, you know, having a regular meeting allows the public to kind of know when they're happening. Also allows board members or whoever's on that meeting uh, agenda to know what's going on on a regular basis.
0: So what are some examples of agencies who are getting in a little trouble over their public meetings?
1: Yeah, so in the last few years, we've seen a couple of uh, boards have, have gotten dinged by either state auditors or other outside people about their meeting issues. Uh, most notably, there was a few years ago, the, the group that won, that ran the Epic Charter Schools uh, was just meeting quarterly, and they had probably the most enrolled students for their virtual school during that time period. And auditors obviously had some issues with the way that school was being run by the, the founders and the, the nonprofit that was overseeing them. And actually said, you need to meet more, uh, you need to have more regular meetings and your board attendance from your board members was pretty pathetic. And so that was definitely one example out there. And then more recently, uh, my fellow colleague, uh, Jennifer Palmer, has looked at the Oklahoma uh, Science, School of Science and Mathematics, uh, which has had some board meeting cancellations, um, lack of notice and issues there on an investigation that she's done recently in that side too.
0: Now, how did you get the information about the meeting cancellations? So yeah, I, I'll kind
1: of rack my brains for a few minutes and and, and figured out that the, the Secretary of State's office has a website where there's meeting notices every every day that's on that website about who's meeting, um, and then you can go to that that particular agency for that agenda or go to the agency themselves and see it posted on the door. But rather than going through every single meeting uh, for the last whatever years, I asked the Secretary of State's office if they had a better way of looking at it, and they actually gave me a spreadsheet of all the meeting cancellations they have gotten in the last five years from state agencies. So that was where we started.
0: So when you tallied that up, which agencies racked up the most cancellations? Yeah, so in the last
1: five years, this is since 2019, uh, we kind of saw the top agencies were the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, the uh, State Regents of Higher Edu- Education, uh, the Council of Educational Quality, uh, and then a couple of regulatory functional agencies like the State Banking Board and the Board for Consumer C- Consumer Credit.
0: Well, some of those uh, seems like it would be important for them to meet pretty regularly. What did the leaders of those agencies tell you about those cancellations? Yeah, when you start looking
1: at each individual agency, they all have different ways of doing business. Uh, for the banking board, particularly the banking commissioner, has a lot of authority in between meetings and has kind of more of a hands-on daily role and uses the the board and the the, the agency uses the board more of a, a sounding board and policy uh, kind of operation. So they they statutorily only have to meet twice a year. So they said, well, we put twelve meetings out every month and let people know that's when we might meet. But then we decide, you know, a week before the meeting's scheduled, if we actually do have to have the meeting, have the board members drive in for that policy side of things. But most of the time we can take care of our business by the banking commissioner with a lot of power day to day, uh, kind of thing. And then secondly, the, the corporation commission, uh, is kind of an outlier in all of this. Uh, in fact, They used to meet or have scheduled meetings twice a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, five days a week for the longest period of time until about a decade ago. And they changed that to basically a Tuesday, Thursday schedule uh, with a morning and afternoon meeting. Um, They had the most cancellations definitely this year, uh, but they said partly that's because they have so many placeholders and they have a lot of meetings that are continued, that are scheduled, but they have some issues with the uh, rate cases and settlement talks, needs more, more time. So we'll continue that to another day.
0: Now, you also talked to some transparency and open government advocates. What were their concerns about all the canceled meetings?
1: Yeah, I mean, they basically said, look, there's there's not a huge issue as long as the public gets good notice of these cancellations. Uh, they said it was a little eye-opening to kind of see some of these agencies that are not meeting as regularly as everybody thought they might be. Uh, but when they said basically that the way that the transparency is, is stifled is if they have a scheduled meeting and they keep putting it off because they think it's a tra- it's a, a controversial issue that might attract a lot of people and they kind of subvert the, the will of the people and transparency by keep moving those those tough decisions to meetings where maybe no one shows up. And they said, that's not really happened, but it has happened in the past. But that's something to watch for, especially when you're looking for agencies that have a lot of canceled meetings if they're trying to uh, kind of avoid the public and avoid controversial decisions being made in public.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read Paul's story about uh, state agencies, boards and commissions and their meeting cancellations, as well as all of Paul's other work related to state government. You'll find it on our website at org. Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. His latest story examines proposed changes to Oklahoma's ballot initiative process. Keaton, what sort of policy changes have come via initiative petitions
2: in recent years? We've seen several significant changes uh, going back to 2016. Uh, there was the state question that reclassified several felonies to misdemeanors, uh, criminal justice reform there, uh, there was the Medicaid expansion uh, question in 2020, um, as well as medical marijuana question in 2018 that passed that uh, drew a pretty big turnout for a, a June primary election.
0: Now, why have some lawmakers really started scrutinizing Oklahoma's initiative
2: process? So mainly from rural lawmakers, we've seen um concern that the process favors the urban areas, uh, specifically with uh, signature collection. There's been a lot of conversation and claims that uh, some of these groups can just go to, uh, you know, a, a Walmart in Oklahoma City and Tulsa and collect all the signatures they need really easily. Uh, those groups have have pushed back on, on those sort of claims. Um, but that's something uh, we've heard over the past several years. Um, and there's also been um, questions about Uh, The funding behind some of the campaigns, whether that's uh, being funded by Oklahoma groups or or out-of-state groups, um, it sort of varies depending on the question, Um, but those have have been some of the, the concerns we've heard from lawmakers in recent years.
0: Now uh when we talk about initiative petitions they're it's often synonymous with the phrase direct democracy right that uh gives uh, voters and the state an opportunity to Uh, craft their own laws if uh, there's something they they can't get the legislature to do for them and uh, get it on the ballot. But uh, lawmakers have proposed some pretty restrictive bills to make that a lot harder to do. Uh, What kind of restrictions have lawmakers proposed recently? So over the past
2: few sessions, we've seen uh, proposals that would require uh, a supermajority, two thirds to pass uh, state question, uh, some others that would require uh, organizers to gather a certain percentage of signatures in every county uh, or every congressional district. Uh, those haven't didn't gain much traction last year, um, but and it's also important to note that the, those bills were technically resolutions that would pass by the legislature would go to uh, a vote of the people to to decide. Uh, so. The legislature doesn't have the final say on it but certainly that's that's a step a significant step if they were able to get uh those sort of questions on the ballot before voters
0: and did any of those proposals end up becoming law
2: so those those sort of sweeping uh measures that i mentioned that uh, you know requiring a supermajority, that sort of thing uh never made the ballot never uh got serious consideration in the legislature uh we have seen some bills in recent years uh sort of changing what organizers are required to submit uh, in 2021 there was a bill um, mandating that they include a, a fiscal impact statement when they uh, as as part of the the process to getting on the ballot. Um, there's also a bill in 2020 changing uh, how the signatures that organizers collect are verified um, so sort of some like uh, organizational bureaucratic uh, changes have taken effect but, uh, none of these sweeping uh, changes that have been proposed.
0: Now, last week you attended an interim study on improving the initiative process. What sort of reforms uh, were suggested in that study?
2: One of the main reforms was lengthening the the amount of time that organizers have to collect signatures. Uh, that's that's been uh, a subject of conversation for several years. Uh, they have ninety days a ninety day period to. Uh, collect signatures to get on the ballot. Most other states, it's at least 180 days, six months, if not a year. Um, So that was one of the topics. Um, There was also some discussion on um, some questions in other states about foreign interests getting involved in uh, ballot initiative state questions uh, after after a federal ruling that they uh, aren't classified as elections under federal law. Uh, So some questions there uh, that could lead to some legislation being proposed. But those are two of the main points.
0: Now, the idea to expand the signature collection period, uh, that's been proposed before,
2: hasn't it? Yeah, there was actually a bill in 2009 um, sponsored by two Republicans that uh, got just one no vote um, throughout the legislative process that would have expanded the the collection period from the current 90 days to a full year. Um, That, of course, was when uh, there was a Democratic governor, Brad Henry. Um, So there was uh, some back and forth perhaps, and maybe Republicans seeing it as an opportunity to get questions on on the ballot and through the ballot initiative process. Um, But Governor Henry vetoed that, uh, noting uh, there was a portion of the bill that dealt with um, protections for organizers um, that he believed some provisions of it would violate. Free speech essentially was was a part of his veto message. Um, so that nearly became law, uh, you know, about 14 years ago.
0: Now, is there any indication the legislature will take up any of those proposed changes next year when they reconvene?
2: It's, it's too early to tell uh, right now. There was the um, the house elections chair, uh, representative Jim Olson was present throughout the hearing, uh, asking questions, taking notes. Um, but several of these reforms, um, based on what we've seen in other Republican led States, um, the trend has seemed to, to lean towards making the ballot initiative more difficult or or tightening it up as opposed to, um, you know, expanding it or, or making it easier. So, um, it it's, it's early to tell, but uh, it, it would face probably a, a steep hurdle in, in the full legislature.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's story about uh, discussions on improving the initiative petition process as well as all of his other Coverage of democracy in Oklahoma as well as criminal justice. You can find all that on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, you can also sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's here to talk about her latest investigation into the Oklahoma School of Science and Mathematics, a state-funded boarding school in Oklahoma City. Jennifer, your first story about OSSM focused on employees' unaddressed complaints about sexual harassment, but the latest piece focuses on complaints from students. What did you find out?
3: Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, we found that the, um, you know, toxic culture that employees talked about um, experiencing at the school um, also seeped into the student experience. Now, not every student, of course, experienced this, but we talked to, um, interviewed nine for the story and talked to other folks connected to the students there and, and alumni groups, and um, there were quite a few who had these um, experiences with uh, bullying and harassment from their teachers.
0: Now, how did you find those former students uh, to talk to? Uh,
3: I mean, this school has, you know, pretty active alumni groups. Um, I'm, uh, I'm told my first story circulated throughout these groups, encouraged some folks to reach out to me uh, to tell their stories they also reached out to the school um to to talk about that um and and then you know i tracked some others down just through records and and reporting i mean a lot of times it's a matter of interview one person who else should i talk to and and just kind of go along like that
0: and what did they tell you
3: um you know there were there's a pretty wide range of experiences. Um, many of these students were very grateful for the experience. It, you know, kind of propelled them to college and, and yet it was, um, you know, damaging in, in many ways. Uh, the, um, the two, uh, there were two professors where we really kind of zeroed in on because the complaints Um, from these students. um, Those were kind of some of the more serious complaints about these two professors.
0: Well, uh, when you talk to these students about their uh, experience, OSSM is only 11th and 12th grade. So uh, the second half of high school for them. Um, How did they describe uh, the effect of their experience there after they left the school?
3: You know, that was something that uh, that really stuck with me. Some of these students were very um, traumatized after this, had talked about, uh, you know, going to therapy, having a mental health crisis. Um, you know, uh, one student, uh, Morgan, told me, you know, she didn't even really recognize how inappropriate her teacher had been behaving until she was in college, kind of talking to other students about what had happened um, and then they kind of looked at her like, yeah, that's not normal. That's not how, um, you know, your high school should be like. Um, you know, uh, another student, uh, Lawton, who I talked to, um, had kind of a, you know, a, a serious mental health breakdown um, after running into that uh, teacher in a in a public venue shortly after graduation and um, and and you know it was kind of compounded by you know the school is already very academically challenging you know students described it as like a pressure cooker um you know there's a lot of pressure in in to make these good grades and then to have uh, you know this to deal with on top of that was was very difficult
0: now uh, one of the things your reporting uncovered was that the school uh, had kind of a lack of rules uh, covering um, how to handle inappropriate behavior, right? Explain what you found there.
3: Yeah, this is what really stood out to me the most, I think. Um, and I've just never seen anything like it. Um, you know, the the school itself is in kind of this gray area with federal rules. They do not follow Title IX um, they don't comply with any of those uh, federal regulations. Um, they, The legislature authorized their board to make rules. They're a state agency. They've done so almost never in their entire existence. They have no state agency rules that would govern employees' behavior or anything like that. Um, and they don't even have an employee handbook. I mean, that's something they've been talking about for years and years. They had an HR generalist who drafted one, they never approved it. Um, It's been something that the board, uh, one board member I talked to is very frustrated by. I mean, how can you hold um, employees responsible for bad behavior if you don't have that laid out? Like what is not acceptable?
0: Oh, is that uh, lack of rules and they are uniquely a a standalone state agency unlike uh, any other school in the state. Um, But is the lack of rules that you found, is that unique to them? Or did you find uh, that that's common among uh, state agencies or other organizations?
3: It's unique to them. I mean, we, you know, for the rule end of it, we compared them to um, other state agencies, like, say, OJA, um, Office of Juvenile Affairs. They, um, you know, are also a state agency. They have, you know, young people in their care. Um, as OSSM does, you know these students live on campus. It's a residential high school, um, and you know it's the difference between two pages of rules at OSSM and two hundred at OJA. So very different there. Um, I also spent some time comparing OSSM to the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics. I mean that's the school that they are modeled after. That school has rules. They have they follow Title Nine. Um, you know, even though they're funded in the same way, um, which is through state appropriations.
0: Well, uh, some of these students made some um, pretty noteworthy allegations uh, about a couple of teachers there and inappropriate behavior. Um, How did the teachers respond to those allegations?
3: Um, I was able to interview one of the teachers on the phone, uh, Kurt Bachman, um, and received uh, responses from the other um, through email. and that was Mark Lee. Um, you know, both teachers denied the allegations um, and said they, you know, needed context or they were, you know, completely um, incorrect. But, you know, we had um, we had interviewed so many students and um, reviewed records and stuff. Um, that just really backed these up. So, um, and, and the school did take some action um, and, and has put them on administrative leave.
0: Well, and uh, one of the things uh, you found following up the original story that we published uh, about a month ago was that um, uh, the new president there uh, has taken some other steps uh, to try to address some of the issues that your reporting brought to light. What else are they doing?
3: Um, So one thing is they have, um, you know, launched a new uh, anonymous reporting, like, hotline kind of a system where students or employees can report complaints um, to kind of give a centralized place for that. That's something they haven't really ever had. Um, And then they've also um, brought back this board uh, subcommittee um, on personnel and the board, um, at their last meeting took action and approved um, hiring a an HR uh, consultant, somebody um, that's going to be brought in to kind of review their policies and make recommendations and, um, you know, work on that employee handbook.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage about the oklahoma school of science and mathematics it's the state's uh, highest ranked high school Uh, you'll find those stories on our website at oklahomawatch.org and you can subscribe to her weekly newsletter education watch while you're there you've been listening to long story short a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.